Well, the reading this morning is from uh, Hebrews 11. We will be in Genesis later, but Hebrews 11, 17 through 23. And if you're new, my name's Rob. I'm the lead pastor, and I'm so glad you're here. Sorry I didn't introduce myself before. Hebrews 11. It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who'd received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his son Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom all of your descendants will be reckoned, will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life. And it was by faith, and in a sense, God did receive, or Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. It was by faith that Isaac promised blessings for the future to his sons, Jacob and Esau. It was by faith that Jacob, when he was old and dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and bowed in worship as he leaned on his staff. It was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, confidently said that the people of Israel would leave Egypt, even though he even commanded them to take his bones with them when they left. And it was by faith that Moses' parents hid him for three months when he was born. They saw that God had given him them an unusual child, and they were not afraid to disobey the king's command. This is God's word, and it's good. What do you desperately want to bring to come forth, to bring it into reality. The first time I realized this question was in the 80s when BMX biking was the rage. And so we even had some high school neighbors at the end of the block that had built a quarter pipe in their backyard. So I would ride by on my little Apache bike and, and then onto my 10-speed bike, and I would watch them launch themselves from the driveway through the backyards, up this thing, and then turn, do a trick, and land perfectly. And I thought, oh, to be a BMX biker. Now, I had a job. It was like right after sixth grade. But at the rate and frequency uh, with which I got paid, I knew that I'd be driving before I'd have enough money to buy this BMX bike. So I got a second job. And I, I delivered papers. And I cleaned this building. And I started seeing the money trickle into the glass jar. And it got higher and higher and higher. And it was about the end of July when I'm like, I think I have enough money to buy this BMX bike. And my friend Johnny, he had this hot pink BMX bike that had this spinny thing on the front so that the, the handlebars could go all the way around. It, it was called the spinny thing. And, you know, the pegs on it. So he was trying to show me how you could do these tricks about getting off the seat and going around to the front and then kicking in the front wheel. And I thought, yes, this would be amazing bring my BMX -er into reality. And my mom had wisely told me before we left to drive the half hour to the shopping mall where said bike would be purchased. Now, your father and I did buy you a bike in the last two years. It's perfectly good bike. It's a perfectly good bike. So this can be your purchase. <laughs> Meaning if it costs any more, you're out of luck. So I had my cash. We went, to the, we went to the store, we went to various sporting goods stores, and we went to the bike stores, and I was just a little short of the one that I really wanted. So this was kind of a big deal, but I did find one. I don't remember exactly how that went down. I just remember that I found one that was a really good deal, 
lime green, not hot pink. Didn't have the spinny thing on the front. It, it was such a good deal that I actually could buy the extra foot pegs for the front and the back. And I thought, oh, this is going to be great. Except it wasn't. And it wasn't like that traditional buyer's remorse where you buy something and then it instantly starts to go downhill. It was this feeling the moment I left, if I'm really honest, that I'd settled. That if I would have just worked a little harder or waited a little longer, I would have had something really great. I mean, that's just a bike. But today, we look at God's word at what it means to have an uncommon love. And when I read Hebrews 11, I don't immediately think of love. Okay, so we're in this series called Uncommon. And we've been looking at what it means to really live a life of faith. To actually live out what Jesus calls us to. And we're looking at the book of Hebrews at these people that are sometimes called the heroes of faith. And as I look at this, I don't immediately think, uh, that doesn't seem like love. I mean, I love the word love. I love to use the word love. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love being outside. I love meeting new people. I love remembering people's names or something, you know, kind of quinky, think about themselves. But, oh, and I love peanut butter. Sorry. <laughs> the allergic kid said it's gross, who's not a kid anymore. <clears throat> but I love you enough to not eat in front of you. But in our world, we kind of put all those things on the same level, and they're certainly not on the same level. Our world tells us that love is connected to our desires, that it's usually filled with emotion or passion, that it's often about romance, but actually that's not at all how the Bible describes love. So when I look at Hebrews 11, I don't immediately think, gosh, this doesn't sound very loving that a father would sacrifice his son. That doesn't seem loving. Some people call this story in Hebrews 11 and in Genesis 22 the, the par excellence, the greatest example of faith. And some people call it the most bizarre story of faith. And some people call it an excruciating act of faith. How would God, who's full of love, who's full of goodness, ask someone to do this. It seems like Abraham is stuck in this contradiction between the promises of God, which are supposed to come through Isaac, and this command of God to sacrifice his son. So, just to connect it to our own lives, do you ever feel stuck in a contradiction? Like, I love my job, but I don't love my boss. Or, I want to honor my parents, I just don't really want to obey them right now. Or, I love my spouse, I'm not liking my spouse right now. Or, I have faith, or I want to have faith, but I have such a hard time in, what I, in putting my trust in what I can't see. Maybe you're sitting here saying, I, I do have faith, uh, but I have a nagging sin, a nagging thought that I can't shake. It feels like we're stuck in a contradiction. And when we're stuck in a contradiction, there is tension around that. And most of us don't like tension. And I think the tension of this story is actually that 
this story that we just talked about with Abraham in Genesis 22 is actually the first time the word love is used in Scripture. So of all the stories that we've had, the creation, the rebellion, the flood, the promise to Noah, the promises to Abraham, the writer is inspired by God to use the word love at this time in the story. That should seem weird. Or at least make you go, hmm. Genesis 22, 2. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. So the Bible's first reference to the word love is not romantic. It's not even about loving God. It's actually about a parent and a special child and offering that child to God. And just so we don't think that's a fluke, uh, the next time the word love is used is in Genesis 25. Now that son has become a father. Genesis 25, 28. Isaac, when he, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, his son. But Rebekah loved Isaac. Parent, special, or special, plural, children. Third time the word love is used. No other times is it used before this. And then it's used immediately in this sequence. The third time is Genesis 37. Now Israel, who is Jacob, becomes Israel, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in an old age and he made an ornate robe for him. Genesis 37.3. These are the first uses of the word love. They're all involving a parent and a special child. And what I find the most tension-producing is this is the very order with which Genesis or Hebrews 11 shares about these stories. Abraham offering Isaac, Isaac blessing Jacob and Esau, and Jacob who becomes Israel loving Joseph. Now that should make you go, Hmm. Hmm. Yep, thank you. Good job. It should cause some tension in you if it won't make you go, hmm. Because Genesis 22, Abraham has more than one son. It's not his only son. 14 years before that, his wife thought they should do an adoption, and so they used a surrogate mother, and he had Ishmael with Hagar. And he loved Ishmael. And he already had to send Ishmael away. So in a sense, he's already lost one son. And now God's really offering, like asking him to give up the other son. And in Genesis 25, in the second story, Isaac's now become the father. And he loves his older son, Esau, because Esau is this really good hunter. And Isaac, for some reason, loves famous Dave's barbecue or some other tasty meat. And we're told that Rebecca just loves Jacob. But we're not really told why she loves Jacob. Maybe she just, like a mother, unconditionally loves her child. But this isn't really about parents having favorite children. This is actually all in the context of which child would be blessed as the firstborn with the birthright and the blessing. And in the ancient world, that was a very big deal. 
to be given the birthright and the blessing. And it traditionally went to the firstborn. But God had revealed in a dream to Rebecca that the older would serve the younger. And so now they're grown up and the parents are fighting over who is the firstborn. Is it Esau or is it Jacob? And if the Bible is producing attention, it has way more to, that there's not an easy answer. I think part of the, well, just keep going for a second. And in the third story, Jacob is renamed Israel when he asks God to bless him. And he loves one child more than any of his other children. And when his brothers see that he, his father loves that child more, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Well, if you put a robe on one of your children and you put them in charge of all the other sons that are older, by the way, you are saying, this is my firstborn son. Uh, you might say it's my favorite, but I would say that he is saying, this is my son, my only son, the son I love. Now, I thought this was just dysfunctional family 101 or people playing favorites. But it actually has a whole lot more to do with love than we realize. But to understand that, my friend Jacob is going to come up. You might know him, so Jacob, come on up here. This is how you leave tension in the room. Uh, so Jacob, you... Come on up. Uh, you grew up in Iowa and South Dakota. I'm guessing you didn't. You weren't born in Iowa or South Dakota. No, I wasn't. <laughs> so, uh, how did you come to live in Iowa or South Dakota? So, I was adopted at the age of 15 months, but um, my parents lived in Iowa. Um, they were married for about seven, eight years at this point, and. Um, they had a teenage daughter already that they brought in from a previous marriage. But um, they also suffered the loss of several miscarriages. Mm. Um, during that time, my mom thought that the only way to love kids was to become a teacher. And that's what she decides to do. And my dad, on the other hand, brings this topic of adoption. <laughs> Up and says that's not the only way to love kids, but adoption is another way to do that. So um, they began that process. They found an adoption agency named Holt, and they started that process. And they shortly after that, they were able to the agency connected my parents to um, a little baby, grandbaby boy. Mm. So. so they were living in Sioux City, I think you said. And what was it like growing up in Sioux City, Iowa? Growing up was... As a, as a beautiful Korean boy. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, it was very different. It was difficult living there. Um, I wasn't like everyone else in my family. Um, being Korean, I wasn't colored skin like everyone else. Family, church, neighborhood, school even. Mm. I, I stood out differently. 
Um, about seven years old then, um, we found out that I had a hearing loss. And so that was another thing that I had to deal with, with a disability. And so, um, but shortly after that, um, I took Taekwondo and karate, and um, the instructor there of the class was Korean. Mm. And that was like the very first encounter that I can remember of someone that was part of me, Korean. And um, he was also a believer, and he, um, we went to one of his church services and had a potluck, got to experience what eating Korean food was, and, um, but it was incredible. But a couple years after that, he was in a car accident, and um, mm. that left him with extreme back pain. Wow, and um, he ended up, if I remember what you had talked to me about earlier, he, he ended up having to close the karate agency, right. and he moved. Right. And so here you have this identification finally after so many years, and now another loss. Um, was it just your parents and your older sister as you were going through this time, or did they end up having more children? No, um, so 10 years after my adoption, we, my parents had gone on several mission trips down into Mexico, and um, we ended up working with an orphanage in Chihuahua, Chihuahua, which is about 250 miles south from the El Paso, Texas border, okay. and so quite a ways down there, and um, ended up my parents ended up falling in love with this 12-year-old girl who had been in, an orf in that orphanage for five years already. Wow. Um, before that, she lived on the street selling candy. And what we know of that is um, her birth mother would take that money and buy alcohol for it. So you're, you're 10 as your parents start to talk about adopting. And I'm imagining if you're 10, and it takes a little while, and are you thinking that they're going to bring home a baby? No. And furthermore, I didn't want another sister. I wanted a brother. <laughs> so this was a double whammy. Yeah. And not only that, but uh, you turn 11 while you go to get this little girl who's not so little. She's an older sister to you. Mom and Dad, what were they thinking? I don't know. <laughs> so you now have two older sisters. Um, you know, how did, how did the loss of your Korean karate instructor and then the addition of this sister affect your family? How, I mean, how did you view your place in the family and just being adopted? Um, it, again, it was different. Um, once we adopted my sister and once my sister came into our family, it helped, but um, it was still difficult. I was insecure, again, um, being different from everyone else, even after we adopted my sister. Mm. So, How often did you um, think about your adoption? So... Um, 
I would ask my parents um, to tell me a bedtime story every single night. And it was the same story. It was my adoption. Yeah. I wanted to know what, what it was like growing up, what my... Um, what they knew about my birth parents, what they felt when they um, started that process of adoption, what what happened with them. Wow. So, did you just really like that story? Why did you ask that one for all all those times? I wanted to hear it, but as I got older, I didn't think much of it. But. Um, a couple of years ago, I was having some issues transferring um, my stuff here to Minnesota. And when I was going through some of that paperwork, I asked my parents to bring the, my adoption papers. And um, I saw a word uh, on the adoption papers. And that word was abandoned. Mm. And I thought, is that what I am? Mm. Am I abandoned? It, am I unlovable? Am I not valued? Am I not worthy? Wow. So. Have you ever felt abandoned? It's a different story. Everybody's story is sacred, and this is Jacob's story. And he's feeling abandoned. I have to imagine that Isaac was feeling a little bit of that when he was carrying the wood up the mountain and his father had a knife and a fire. And he says, hey, Dad, we have the wood and the fire, but where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And his dad simply says, well, the Lord will provide. Now, notice that Isaac was carrying the wood. Not Abraham. I think Abraham was a little too old and weak to carry the wood. That Isaac was actually grown up and had to choose to be on the altar. In one sense, to have to choose to be abandoned. See, I think if we can hold the tension of this story, what we realize is it's less about sacrificing something to a deity and more of what the other definition of sacrifice can mean of presenting an offering or bring something forward to someone. And it's a powerful reminder that God does not ask us to do things that are easy, like flossing, or cleaning up after yourself, or being kind to others. I mean, those things are important. Flossing is, you know, we could argue, but, but don't, because Leslie will get upset. But God expects us to do those things. He's not going to ask us. He's God. He's only going to ask us to do the radically difficult things. And the thing that I think is amazing in this story, and I, I truly believe God's word and believe it's true, but I don't believe that God needs Abraham to sacrifice his son. Part of the reason I don't believe that is that you provide a lamb to offer substitute for a son, and God provides a ram, not a lamb. You can go think about that later. But I think this is more about Abraham than Isaac. And if we can hold the craziness of the story, I think God is asking Abraham to sacrifice 
Isaac as something good to be offered to God and to his service. See, Isaac was the son that Hebrews tells us was as good as dead. And Isaac was the one who, you know, we think was tricked into blessing Jacob, but actually does bless Jacob. Jacob becomes the tribes of Israel. His sons become the nation of Israel, the one that's going to bless the world. And Israel, that transformed Jacob, is the one who sees the son that is very good. Now, this causes problems in their family. They say that the brothers hate him and could not speak a kind word to him, but the kind word is shalom. They could not speak a word of shalom, a word of peace, a word of goodness, a word of restoration to him. That's actually what shalom means. And his father knows that his brothers hate him. And it says that he keeps the matter in mind, Genesis 37, 11. Now, maybe he kept the matter in mind because he remembered that the sons, the brothers of Joseph, his sons had no peace for Joseph. They had no goodness, no kindness, no restoration towards him. So maybe that's why he kept it in mind. But he could have kept it in mind because he remembers that he and his brother actually had no shalom between each other. They had no goodness for each other. They had no peace for each other. And if he thought about it further, he'd remember that his dad... And his uncle Ishmael actually had no kindness, peace, or shalom for one another. And maybe he saw something in Joseph that could actually change all of that. He saw something that was very good that he needed to choose and offer to God and to his service. In Genesis 37, Israel says to Joseph, you know your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. I want you to go and see how they are doing. And Joseph says, I will go. Go and see if all is well, is to say, I want you to go and see to the shalom of your brothers and to the flocks. And so Joseph goes. Or, yeah, Joseph goes. And he knows that the other brothers hate him. A father puts a son in harm's way. To see to the shalom of his brothers. And he can't find them, and he sees a man, and the man says, what are you looking for? No one else is around. Anyone, I mean, Joseph could say anything to anyone, and no one would know. And Joseph says, he says, what are you looking for? I am looking for the shalom of my brothers. This is the first time in the story where a brother is not murdering a brother, a brother is not fleeing from a brother, a brother is not hiding from a brother, not hitting a brother, not harming a brother. This is the first time in the story where a brother is seeing to the shalom of his brothers. And that, not only that, Joseph goes and gets a long detour, and yet when he goes into this detour, if you read the story in Genesis, you find Joseph brings shalom to Potiphar when he's sold to him. He brings shalom to the jailer. He brings shalom to Pharaoh. He brings shalom to the whole world. And his brothers come to them, and he brings shalom to his family. But it took his father seeing that good thing, choosing that good thing, and then offering that good thing back to God. And then Joseph brought that for everyone. Is beautiful. It's what I think true love is, but it's uncommon. Jacob, you said you asked your parents about this story and you felt abandoned. 
what did you learn about your birth parents? So, what I learned was my birth mother was 31 years old when she had me. She was the youngest in her family. She was a seamstress, and both of her parents were actually gone at mm. this point. So, she really didn't have anyone. Um, all that I know about my birth father is that he was 10 years older than my mother. They met in October of 87. And um, they ended up living together. And two months later, she finds out that he's actually married to someone else. Wow. And so she d makes this decision to part ways with him. And then she finds the unexpected that she's pregnant with me. Wow. So she keeps you, has you. She keeps me. She does the best she can as a single parent. And she loved, cared, and protected me. But about 10, 11 months old, I became very sick. Mm. She thought that she was going to lose me. She didn't have any money for any medication. And she thought that the best thing for me was to give up her parental rights, give up the rights to be a parent. And um, she knew she couldn't take care of me. And she thought you were going to die. And she thought that I was going to die. And... And I would say it would be a very normal thing for a parent in that situation to hold their kid as long as they have them and to do the painful thing of bury them. And that, that would be a common love. But she didn't do that. She didn't. She placed me in a children's home in July of 89, and the next month I was placed into a foster home. And that's where we pick up the story of your parents receiving you. So I would say that Jacob is not abandoned, but that a mother saw the good and the possibility of life and did a very hard thing and offered him up to the care of God. And Jacob, you now bring, you not only have life, you bring life to others because you don't want anyone else to feel this way. Yes. I, it was a long route. It was. But you got to this place of being a secure orphan who is no longer an orphan. But through the process of not wanting any other kids to feel the way that you felt, you got connected with um, KCAFO, right? Yep. What is that? So CAFO or CAFO is um, the Christian Alliance for Orphans. And I think there's a couple pictures that um, can um, yep. be shown. And this is just a fantastic organization. Um, made up of churches, ministries, individuals that just have, 
are trying to learn God's heartbeat for the plight of the orphan mm. and to find ways to um, become engaged in that. They're and the ones who started yes. Orphan Sunday, the video yes. that we saw before. Yes. And so um, my first time um, down in there, I down at the conference um, with KFO, I saw that there were different ways to become engaged. and Because you knew you weren't at a place, I, you, you told me, you weren't at a place where I could foster a child. I'm a single person, I have a job, I, but what could you do? What could I do? What I could do is there were ways that I could advocate. Mm -hmm. There were ways that I began to see at the summit um, different groups of people that weren't just foster and adoptive families, but there were a group over here that were respite care providers, wrapping around and encouraging foster and adoptive families. There were a group of um, sponsorships leaders who were financially giving mon monthly to kids who needed that love and care. Mm -hmm. There were a group over here who were prayer warriors. They stand in the gap for our kids. There were encouragers and supporters of those who were engaged in county social workers, mm. encouraging our county social workers to become engaged and to sh continue to share that love with these kids. And I began to see what the body of Christ actually looks like from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that there's one body mm -hmm. but different members we could all do this together. We could all bring our gifts and skills mm -hmm. and talents together so that there is no more offense, so that wow. these kids do not feel abandoned. Wow. Jacob, I'm convinced that, uh, well, I'm not convinced. I have no idea if your mother knows and could see the good that was in you but I'm absolutely convinced that God could, that your story has value, and that as you bring it forward, you're advocating for the orphan. You're telling others, and you're not just doing it here. You've connected with churches all around the country, in fact, to explain and share, and it's very good. Um, Jacob, are you going to be at the resource table afterwards that's out in the hall to yes. share more ways that either we can be involved or how you've been involved um, to find out more information. I know we've gone a little longer than normal, but um, uncommon love is seeing something that you have, choosing it, and offering it to God. It's a beautiful and hard thing, but when we do it, it brings life to others that brings life to others, that brings life to others, like the story of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Joseph's sons, who were also blessed in the wrong order, and to Moses' parents, who see something unbelievably good, that's the word, about him. This is the story of our God. When you choose to step into it, lives can be changed and transformed. 
not just restored, but brought whole to others. If you see something that's good and it's not yours, it's not love to take it. But you can bless it and call it out. That's what we did with our kids. That's what we'll do with each other. We will bless things that we see are good and we will call them out and they will bring life to others because there is this father who so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that anyone in the world who would believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life because God didn't send him into the world to condemn it but to save it. And in a sense, he was brought back to life, in a sense, in a very tangible sense. And in a sense, when we choose to believe that story, we are brought back to life. Because that is the story of the entire Bible. And it can be the story of us. Would you pray with me? Would you stand? You can stay here, because I'm going to bless you. I can't offer you up, but I can bless you. Get up here. God, thank you for demonstrating uncommon love that we could be people who receive what you saw as good, what you chose, and what you gave for your service and for our redemption and restoration. May we see to the shalom of those around us, God. Thank you for Jacob, not only the way that you've restored him and called him whole and made him this man that you've called him to be, but you have brought life through him to others. You are telling others through him about the plight of the orphan. And God, is our prayer that not one would be abandoned. God, spiritually, physically, relationally, We are people who stand with you for the good of the world. We seek peace. Help us to see it, to choose it, and to call it forth or offer it up.